0: We know that when you become a believer, a follower of Jesus, that God miraculously, supernaturally indwells us or lives in us. Um, Just as it were, comes in as our abiding helper, our 24-7 presence, 24-7 God that leads, guides and directs us and empowers us in all that we do is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Uh, and here's uh, where this, um, this work starts. and it's, it's, a, it's a gradual transformation as the Holy Spirit comes in. It's a gradual transforming of our lives. It's sort of a little bit by little bit or millimetre by millimetre. Sometimes there can be larger leaps or bounds in growth, but generally the life of a disciple committed to Christ, it's a gradual process. It's just step by step. Sometimes it's only millimetre by millimetre as we're changed into the image of Jesus. Uh, The image of God that we were made in has been corrupted by sin and it's now being restored by God's spirit back into the image of Jesus Christ, the perfect human being, our saviour. It's a journey of spiritual transformation. And everyone who calls himself a believer or a follower of Christ, a disciple, is committed to this journey. You are on this journey and this journey will never end or won't be completed until we die or or if Christ returns. So while we're alive here upon this earth, we are still changing bit by bit, day by day, moment by moment, all the way till our life ends or until Christ returns. And the great thing about this, this journey is that God truly hasn't left us to our own devices. As I said in conversion, He does give us His Spirit so we're not left to our own devices to try and stumble around in this world and work out our own way to get forward. If we were left to our own devices, we would not last a day probably wouldn't last a minute because in our own devices, we haven't got the strength to actually follow Christ. This is what God does. He wonderfully gives us the Holy Spirit who becomes this uh, partner in life, but this prime partner, the Holy Spirit is the prime mover or the primary power in our lives that engages us to now go down this um, partnership of transformation. And we're not passive in this either. We're not like a passenger on a bus And the Holy Spirit just drives the bus and we're there on for the ride. No, not at all. We are active, engaging with what the Holy Spirit does in our lives, interacting with us, motivating us, empowering us, giving us desires, and then partnering with the Holy Spirit in this journey of transformation in our lives. And this is what we call, if you want to call it a sort of a um, biblical term, we call it progressive sanctification a crazy big word, isn't it? Really, it's just an ongoing process of being separated from sin and becoming more like Christ. If you went to a Bible college, they would call that progressive sanctification. But that's what's happening. And that's what we're doing in this series here, because we're looking at how we grow as believers, how we mature as believers, how we stand strong in this world, how we actually overcome this world as believers. And at the same time, how we grow in the joy of being a follower of Jesus Christ. So that's what we do, the spirit indwells us and we now commit ourselves uh, to this task and we play our part in partnership. Let me show you a book. MPOL's Sporting Book of Records. That book's about, um, let me do a quick calculation, it's about nearly 50 years old. No, 40 years old, 40 years old. Sorry, I lost 10 years there. I loved this book, when I was about 10 or 14 I devoured this book, Sporting Records. Any spare moment of the day I would just read and read and read. I could just get into all these facts and figures of sporting achievements. I could get there and I could just absorb all this stuff and I could find out the longest golf drive and how far it went. That's pretty riveting information isn't it? Or what was the lowest golf score to win a major championship? I could go there, I could see who who took the most wickets in a test match. I could go there and I could read something like this. Let me just find something. Three races to decide a winner in horse races. Three races were once run before finding a winner of the 1872 Australia Cup. Isn't that riveting reading? (laughs) As a 10 to 14 year old, I just devoured this book. I loved it. I read and read and read. I could read about the most successful darts player in the world. I could read about all the AFL, VFL records, the longest kick, the most goals scored in a game. I just got any chance I could, I just got into this book and I kept reading and reading and learning and learning. And you know what it did? It gave me a passion and a desire for sport. I became a sports nut. Actually, I used to sleep with my football. I did. I did. I'd take my football to bed and wouldn't actually cuddle it, but I'd just be right beside me in my bed as I lay there at night. Now, I was about 10 or 14, right, so I've grown up a little bit since then. But that's what happened. I was a sports nut. I loved this book. I would read and read and devour. I'd think about it. It began to shape the way I thought about life, shape the way I thought about sport. It was a book that I just got right into, and it changed the way I thought about things. Maybe not always for the better, (laughs) But it, it grew a passion within me. It grew a passion within me. Here's another book. Here's another book. This is the Bible. Different book altogether. This is the book that the Holy Spirit uses to uh, grow within us a passion for loving and serving Christ. This is a book that the Holy Spirit wants us to devour, to absorb, to read, to be changed by to be worked through. This book is unlike any other book that you'll read, very much unlike the Ampol sporting book of records. As a disciple commits themselves to reading this book and thinking over what is said in this book, it brings radical change as far as joy and hope and strength in the middle of extreme circumstances. It is supernatural what this book does. It does a work that is deep down in our souls. It's not just a surface work. It radically changes us from the inside out and produces within us this incredible love for Christ, this incredible love for God, our Creator. This book beams, uh, as it were, radiates light and truth into our lives. When we are filled with confusion and not knowing where to go, this book speaks into our lives via God's Spirit and brings light and truth into our hearts and into our lives. It's an incredible book. It's a book that really does lead us into deep, deep joy. This is the book that leads us to everlasting delight and where it comes from. It's a book that does produce incredible delight in our lives. Let me just read here from Psalm 1, which talks about this book. Blessed, the word blessed there is happy. Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight, his happiness, his joy, his delight is in the law of the Lord. In other words, in God's word. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Blessed, happy, joyful, delighted is the man who meditates upon God's word, who ponders over it and thinks over it. This person has joy. This book reveals to us the source of this joy and where it comes from. Now, our experience in this world is challenging when it comes to information, isn't it? It really is challenging when we think about it. It's nearly like information overload in the world that we live in. There's no end of things that are trying to find space in our heads somewhere for what we call information or bits. Bites of information. of You could be at university, we have a few people here at university, and what are they doing? They're full of all sorts of subject knowledge. They're going to lectures, tutorials, they're doing pracs, they're doing all sorts of things, and they're trying to cram all this stuff into their heads, and some of them, even now as we pray today, are trying to actually get it all in order so they can sit for an exam over the next couple of weeks. So much stuff trying to find space in their head as far as information is concerned. And if you're not involved in university, you've only got to go home and turn on your computer, as one source of place that is trying to put information to your head and you get there and you download your emails and you've got all these e-newsletters that you didn't know you had subscribed for but all of a sudden they're coming into your inbox and they're trying to feed us with information. They're trying to give us things to think about, things for us to form and shape the way we view this world or the way we view life. If that's not enough, you've only got to pick up the newspaper and there's another source That's actually sort of filling our heads with information, filling our heads with all types of things that are happening all around the world, people expressing their opinions and their thoughts and their views on life. If that's not enough, turn on the TV and the same thing will happen again. All sorts of programs there that are trying to fill our heads with all types of uh, opinions, all types of theories, all types of sort of pictures, all types of lectures or all types of things, what's happening in and around this world we live in. There are myriads and myriads of sources out there that are trying to fill our heads with all types of things. That it really is like information overload. All they're trying to do is shape and form the way we think and the way we actually live our lives in this world. And in amongst all of this information overload, we find ourselves as disciples of Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus amongst this whole sea of information that is trying to find space in our heads. And we discover what Jesus has done. Jesus has actually saved us from what what the Bible calls futile thinking before we became Christians. And that futile thinking is trying to imagine life in this world without God in the centre, trying to do life in this world without Jesus Christ in the centre of all those things. And so for some of us, perhaps you may become a Christian later in life, You may have 20, 30, 40, who knows how many years where your mind has been absorbing all these things over all those years. And all those things without Christ in the centre have shaped the way we think and the way we view and perhaps the way we act and the way we speak. And what happens when we become a believer? The first thing the Holy Spirit works on is our minds. It's the way we think. It's the control centre of actually what drives us as human beings. The Holy Spirit comes, as it were, to work on our minds. We get so programmed by the responses of this world that we just automatically somewhat just feed out what this world thinks, how this world acts or how this world responds. If you've grown up perhaps outside of a Christian influence or Christian understanding about the, the concept of where this world comes from, what you'll hear constantly and regularly is an evolutionary process. You know, there was some big bang explosion that took place, who knows, trillions of years ago and somehow out of this, the planet Earth has formed and then after that, a couple of cells sort of crawled out of a swamp and they somehow mutated together and voila, trillions of years later, here we are. I mean, that's in a nutshell what the evolutionary process may look like. But if you're going to school and going through years and years, you'll hear that just as a matter of fact. That's what it is. And it conditions the way we think. So if somebody says, where do we come from? Well, I think I come from a chimpanzee. That's where I think I evolved from. It just sort of comes out. That's the conditioning this world does to our minds. So what happens here? The Holy Spirit has to deprogram our minds, has to deprogram as it were, begin to then reprogram and transform us into the truth of the gospel. And here's what our passage says here in Romans today. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words there, Paul is saying, don't let this world conform or mould you or shape you into its pattern. Don't let this world take all of its information and try and cookie cut you out into a pattern that suits this world. Don't be in the pattern of this world. Don't be formed or conformed into the patterns of this world. But, he says there, be transformed. Be totally made over. Have a total reset. Be totally remade by God's word, by the renewing of your mind. So it's the mind where God's spirit works first to deprogram us and then to begin to reprogram us so that we think right, so that our right thinking produces right actions, and these right actions produce lives that reflect the glory of God. Our minds need need to be conditioned back into a certain way. We need to recondition them to think in a new way. We need new information just as I absorb heaps of information out of Ampol's sporting book of records, and that made me think in certain ways, I need new information now that retrains my mind, new facts, that makes me think in a right way. In steps the Bible. In steps the Bible for this new information, for this new truth to reprogram my mind. So here's the truth now that I need to devour and to feed on to renew our minds, to renew my mind. I need something now to take the place of what's been filling it previously, and now something that begins to come in and fill it anew to make me think right and to help me think straight. Here's three quick elements as I think about the Bible that we will be quickly touch on, that gives us uh, that the Bible gives us for living as committed disciples. And they are truth. Comfort and hope. Just three things. I could pick a whole host of things, but let's just let's just look at these uh, three. God's word is truth. We have to see that this new information that God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, wants to pour into our hearts and our lives is truth. Is truth. John 17, 17 says this. Jesus in his prayer before he's about to be crucified says, Sanctify them in the truth. In other words, separate them from the ways of this world and the sinfulness of this world in the truth. So do this by your truth. What's the truth? Jesus says, your word is truth. So Jesus is praying to the Father. He said, separate them from this world, from all the falseness of this world. Bring into their minds truth. What is the truth? God, your word is truth. Proverbs 30 verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Every word of God proves true. This is joy and delight for a disciple committed to following Christ. God's word is true. With everything we hear in this world promising this and promising that, how do we know it's true? How do we know what's right, what's wrong? What's our measuring stick to see if what's being told to us is actually true? What do we compare it with? What do we put it up against? A disciple committed to Jesus Christ can come with whatever's been spoken to him or said to him or trying to find space in his head and he can put it alongside and know that the Bible is true. Now, what's being said to me, is that true? How does it match up with the scriptures? How does it match up with what God says? Because I know that every word that comes out of this book is God-breathed and is there to inform us about the reality of this world and of truth. When we're in doubt about what we're hearing, we can come back to God's Word and say, I thought there was something wrong with that. Actually, God's word is true here. It shows me that there was something wrong with what I was hearing over there. Now, some of you would be aware of this, perhaps in the primary school system or even all school system at the moment, is the Safe Schools program that they're trying to bring into the school system. I think trying for next year. It's not in at this stage. Now, there's a lot of stuff in that that is just downright evil. It's very much sort of flying under the radar as in not overtly out there but it's got some terrible stuff to say about human relationships and human sexuality. It's trying to tell us that your gender is fluid. You can be born a boy, but you can change to a girl just by simply saying, now, I'm going to be a girl. I don't know if anybody saw that report on the Sunday night program about two or three weeks ago. Um, A couple of mothers there with some kids. I mean, I was saddened after I saw that. And I was saddened for the poor mother who had a... Six or seven year old boy, and he now wanted to become a girl. She was supporting him and dressing him up and getting his hair in ponytails and putting him in a dress and sending him to school. She's living in the darkness. She hasn't got the truth. Unfortunately, she's lost. But that's what's sort of coming in or trying to come into our school system. It's something that's false. How do I know it's false? I come back to the Bible, I come back to the truth. I come back to the measuring stick. It's not true. It's false. God's Word is comfort. God's Word is comfort. What we find in the Bible is that God is a God of comfort. Second uh, Thessalonians 2, 16, 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and our good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. We suffer in this world. We really, really do. We go through a whole life on of varying degrees of suffering, and sometimes even more so as Christians, we will suffer, because all of a sudden we find ourselves not living the same way this world lives. Suffering comes in all various degrees. The Holy Spirit works big time with God's word, in showing us and delivering to us from God's word, comfort. In the heat of trouble, in overbearing pressure, the Spirit brings God's word alive to our hearts and brings to us what our soul needs right at that moment, and that is comfort. Psalm 23:4 is a classic verse for this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me millions upon millions upon millions of disciples have come to this psalm at a testing time of life and they have received comfort. It's a picture here of the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And the the rod and the staff is the God who leads me and guides me through the valley of the shadow of death. God's word is comfort. And people have experienced that, experienced that not some sort of mental head knowledge, just a fact or something up here, experienced God's comfort as they've read through his word and God reveals himself through that word and comfort comes and floods their lives, floods their hearts in the times of most desperate, desperate need. Followers, disciples of Jesus Christ, committed to him, meet God in the scriptures. And what they meet in the scriptures is a God of comfort a God who is there, a God who knows, a God who knows exactly what they're feeling and He brings real-time comfort to them. That is a delight and a blessing for a disciple committed to Christ. God's Word is hope. God's Word brings hope to the hopeless. It's powerful at doing this. Romans fifteen four: For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So there's information, it's for our instruction. That through endurance... And through the encouragement of the scriptures, God's Word, the Bible, we might have hope. The scriptures, the Bible, is there for our hope. Sometimes we find ourselves crushed under the weight of circumstances. Sometimes we have a load that seems impossible to carry. What I'm trying to deal with what I'm trying to deal with in my mind right now, I cannot deal with it. It is crushing me. It is overbearing. I can't cope with this overload at the moment. This relationship I cannot deal with anymore. The more I invest in the person, the more that person just seems to leave me out in the cold. The more I want to try and help fix up things, the more I'm given the rough end of the stick. It just seems hopeless. I'm out of hope. I've got no more hope in this situation. Why do people want to euthanise in this world? That's been on the the, the radar again lately. Why do they want to euthanise? The basic reason is they've lost all hope. They were hoping that the doctor would have a cure. They were hoping that some sort of medication would be able to reverse this disease or sickness in my life. They were hoping in the hospital or the doctor or the medication to somehow fix them up. What should they find out? They've been told, your condition is terminal, there is no cure, you have... Days, weeks, months to live. So they lose all hope. Then their only hope is that perhaps death will end all their suffering for those who want to euthanise. The disciple committed to the gospel can turn to the scriptures and find the God of all hope. Again, Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. What are we believing? We are believing the truths of the gospel as they are outlaid for us in the Bible. May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing the scriptures so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Abound in hope. So the Spirit works through His word, renewing our minds with this truth. And this truth in the most desperate of situations in a terminally ill patient, who knows they have days or weeks to live, the committed disciple of Christ has hope. And the hope is this, that death is not the end, that Jesus Christ has already come and he has conquered sin and death. So the death for the committed disciple is actually the entry point into eternal life. Can you see the difference? For the one who wants to euthanize, they have no hope. Their hope is death will end their suffering. But for the believer, the disciple committed to Christ, death is not the end. The hope that is abounding in their heart is now I'm going to be with Christ forever. Paul the Apostle said to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's hope. Only hope can say that. He finds the joy and delight of following Jesus through his word and through the gospel that the Holy Spirit brings to bear in his mind. It's an incredible thing that we have here in this Bible. Here, our God, our Creator, in the beginning, God made that God created the heavens and the earth, leaves us a record of himself. Leaves us a, a uh, objective record, not to be disputed. The Bible becomes this treasure trove of precious, precious promises that a gracious God wants us to know. And wants us to believe firmly in with Him. As we all experience from time to time in varying ways, everything in this world will crash and crumble around about us. But God's word remains true and will never fail. He tells us in Peter, the uh, the, the flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of the Lord stands forever. It's just so true. Everything else will crash and crumble, but God's word stays on forever and ever. And disciples of Jesus can go to this word and they can find truth and comfort and hope without fail in any situation. And the glorious truth in this is that God's Word, uh, God's Spirit, sorry, works intimately with this Word. It's like a, uh, it's, it's a package deal, and it's probably not a good way of saying it, but it is. You don't just get God's Word on its own or get God's Spirit on its own. It's a package. It comes together. That's the way God works together, through His Word, by His Spirit, An incredible thing, as I said before, that God miraculously builds this this faith, which we can't explain, but it gives us such an anchor in life to face this world, whatever it may throw at us. And it's here where we see God's Spirit transforming us uh, in this day by day, millimetre by millimetre and uh, hour by hour experience that uh, testifies to this very fact that God is working in His Word. I can't say highly enough how God's Word is the very nourishment for our souls. I couldn't express it in enough ways or enough terms just to say how critically important it is for disciples to see that just like we feed our body with healthy food to get good health and strength and energy, so we must feed our souls with God's truth to give us strong, healthy souls that are able to grow and mature in this world and take on whatever may come our way. But reading the Bible is a challenge, isn't it? We struggle to read the Bible, even though you'll probably all agree with what I've just said over the last 15 or 20 minutes. I don't think anybody would disagree here with what I've just said, but we find it a challenge. We find it difficult. Even though we know it's so incredibly good, And so incredibly amazing. What would happen if I asked us to keep a log of how much time we spend on Facebook or Instagram or any other social media feed in comparison to how much time we spend reading the Bible and putting that information into our minds? Could be embarrassing, couldn't it, if we actually did that? And said, just for the next week, just put a little diary there. Every time we spend five minutes, ten minutes, half an hour, an hour. Two hours, whatever it might be, on screen time, and they're right over there. How much time did I spend reading the Bible? <coughs> Could be embarrassing. <coughs> Why is it that I can find all sorts of time to do my hobbies out in the shed or in the craft room, but I can't seem to find time to regularly read the Bible? Why is it that I can find four or five hours a week to watch TV? That's probably conservative. Why is it I can find four or five hours a week to watch TV but I can't even find 30 minutes for the week, half an hour, to read the Bible? Why is it that I can find all sorts of time for gym and fitness and other sort of recreational activities, whether it be walking around the lake or whatever you do, and they're all good things to do, but why can I find lots of time for that but I can't find time to read the Bible each day? We know it's good for us, we know it's right, but we struggle, don't we? We struggle. Let me put up perhaps a few suggestions here and and maybe God's spirit will work on your own heart as you think about some of these things. Perhaps some of us just haven't seen the importance or that our soul's eternal good is wrapped up in the truths of the Bible. Maybe we just haven't seen the Bible for what God has said it is, his very word. And just how important it is. Maybe we've demeaned the Bible, or just let it drop right down the priority list, and just haven't really seen just how critical it is for our hearts and our lives. Yeah, you know, I guess I'd pray today that God's, God would reveal to you us afresh just how important and just how truthful this word is, and just how critical it is for our lives. Here's another one. And I say this lovingly and carefully. Maybe some of us are just lazy. Maybe we barely try to apply ourselves to the Bible. We just don't raise the effort to do it. Now, I don't think anyone here will find themselves sort of somehow, oh, gee, I'm in this armchair, got a good reading lamp, I've got a cup of coffee, the Bible's in my lap. We don't tend to just find ourselves like that, do we? We'd love to find ourselves like that how, and ask, oh, how do I get here like this? But we don't naturally find ourselves like that. It's not sort of naturally taking place with us. So I think sometimes when it comes to applying ourselves to the Bible, we don't really try. We don't actually put a plan in place to read the Bible. And That's what a disciple must do. They must commit themselves. To reading the Bible. It becomes this spiritual discipline. It's a spiritual action that Satan hates. It's a spiritual action that the devil will do anything he can to keep us away from God's Word. Why? Because the devil knows there's incredible power here that is unlimited as God's Spirit works with this Word. He will bring any number of all sorts of distractions into our lives because he knows a Bible reading Christian is a dangerous Christian. One who can see through the devil's lies and deception. There are a million things that will keep us away. Lots of good TV shows to watch on TV. There's lots of good Facebook pages to read up and see what's happening in other people's lives. There's lots of good stuff to do on Instagram or Snapchat or whatever else people are on. None of those things are wrong. There's lots of distractions here that fill our minds. There's lots of good sporting book records you can read as well. Lots of things. Lots of things. A reading plan must be put in place. This challenging thing about reading the Bible needs a plan. We need to lock into our minds a certain time of day that I make this my Bible reading time. I want to feed my soul. I want to build up my inner man. I want to build up my life in Christ. And I lock that in because I want to nourish uh, my soul with the truth of God's word. So the TV's got to go off, the phone's got to go off, the computer's got to go off, the iPad's got to go off. Whatever is possibly blocking you or me from this, we need to say put it off, turn it off, switch it off, put it away, find a quiet room, find a quiet place and then open up God's Word and allow His Spirit to work through that and see the amazing things that God will do as His Spirit works with that Word in our heart and our lives. Todd, you don't know my reading skills I can't read. I'm a really poor reader. It's so slow and so long just to read one paragraph. I don't doubt there's some people like that. Well, praise God for portable MP3 devices. What a wonderful age we live in. You can get the Bible and you can download it onto your phone or an iPod or whatever portable MP3 device you may have. You can stick it in your ears as you travel to work. You can stick it in your ears as you walk around the lake. You can find a quiet place in your house or wherever you're living, and you can stick it in your ears and you can listen to God's Word. So it doesn't matter if you can't read. It would be great if you could, but if you can't, that's all right. We live in this modern technological age where we can stick it in our ears so we can hear God's Word. There's no excuse. You see, a disciple who's discovered Jesus through the gospel has discovered a treasure, a supreme treasure in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And what we find is this treasure, Jesus, is made larger and larger and more and more valuable in our hearts and our minds as he transforms us and as he grows this way through the reading of the Bible, we see him spoken about in all different ways. And then as I apply myself to this reading of the Bible, reading of God's Word, the Spirit works through this in a transformational way. And some of the incredible products of that transformation is this joy, contentment and satisfaction in life. It's amazing what happens through this. It's the experience of untold millions of people. Who come to this and they just find the words of truth and life bounce off the page and it just as it brings clarity to their world of confusion. I was just reading yesterday on an open doors uh, magazine about these people in China about 40 years ago hungering for bits and pieces of the Bible. Like they have one page of scripture for a thousand people in the church. And they were just handing that one page to each other and they were just trying to memorize it just shows that they had seen the value of God's Word. They had seen the joy that comes from knowing even one page of God's Word. Incredible things. A life of a disciple is absolutely committed to God's Word because he knows and he sees the value of Christ and he realised and experienced the joy there is in growing in this knowledge of Him. Ten minutes a day. If you set aside ten minutes a day, I think you'd nearly get through the Bible in a year. Ten minutes is not much. It really isn't much. If it's determined, if it's committed to, if it's planned, ten minutes of the day will get you through the Bible. Surely there'll be parts where you don't fully understand. I'm not sure what's happening there. We come and we talk about this here at Exchange. That's why we open the Bible up is to explain it, to help us grow in our knowledge of Christ. And there'll be lots of people here that would be happy to get alongside you and say, I don't fully understand that bit. Can you help me understand it a bit more? People would love to do that here. You'll have no regrets. You'll have no regrets whatsoever if you committed 10 minutes a day to reading God's Word and getting through the Bible in a year and then do it all again the next year and do it all again the next year and do it all again the next year. I've been reading the Bible for 40-plus years and I think I've probably read through it now probably 70 times and I try and get through the Bible uh, once a year and the New Testament twice, just in my own personal reading. And I can tell you even now, even last, two nights ago I was reading something in the book of Ezra and I thought, I've never seen that before. I've never seen that before. And I've probably read through Ezra at least 70 times. I've never seen that before. It's just the way God works in his word. He just keeps unveiling new stuff. And you can talk to people, Christians, who are far older than me, because I'm only young, <laughs> far older than me, and they're in their 80s, some in their 90s, and they're saying, I've never seen that before. God, you are amazing. And just brings fresh joy, fresh delight, fresh strength, fresh truth into their hearts. Incredible things. Let me finish with this from John's Gospel. Uh, these are the words of uh, Peter and John. Uh, Jesus has just given some strong teaching and um, sort of ruffled a few feathers and many people have turned away. And uh, here's what he says in verse 66. After this, many of his his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So they left Jesus. So Jesus said to the 12, his 12 close disciples, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and you have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. (coughs) Peter says, Jesus, you have the words. You have the truth of eternal life. And we have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. May that be our conviction today. May that be a fresh, renewed conviction in our hearts that would translate into disciplined, spiritually committed reading of God's Word so that Jesus would truly grow larger and larger in our hearts. And why? Because we want to grow stronger and stronger as disciples. And why do we want to do that? Because we want to go out also and share this joy with the people of Greater Shepparton. We want others to come and know who this Jesus is and how amazingly this Bible uh, reveals him to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you today. Thank you today for this uh, glorious book that you've given to us. Thank you today that, Jesus, you are revealed through this book as our great saviour, the one who's died upon the cross to rescue us and to save us. And not only to do that, but now allow your spirit to come and live inside of us and to transform us through the truth of your word. Lord, thank you today that you are a gracious God who gives us the power to do this and enables us to do this and is there with us to do this. Holy Spirit, today I pray that you would afresh in our hearts, renew within us a love and a desire for your word. And for those today, Lord, who may be feeling guilty, feeling convicted, Lord, help them to see that you are a forgiving God and you're a God who comes alongside and you pick us up and we go again. Lord, maybe today there's going to be fresh commitment, fresh resolve to read your Word. I pray that you'll help all of us to do that. Help all of us to clear our diaries. Help us to make the space, Lord, of 10 minutes a day, 10 minutes a day to read your Word. And pray that through that you will do incredible things in revealing just how great, how glorious, how mighty you are and how personal you are with us through this personal relationship with you, through Christ, by the Spirit and through your word. Help us with this, Lord, I pray. Help us to encourage each other in doing this as well. Lord, I ask that and I pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Any questions? Jen? So, yeah, Jen's question there is, um, um, she's having a discussion with her daughter and Jen's saying one thing and her daughter's saying, well, that's your opinion, Mum. So how do we convince them? I mean, re- really, we can't convince them in our own, as you just said, Jenny. I mean, really, we're praying that God will convince them. We're praying that God's spirit will open their eyes up to that <laughs> truth because everybody has a worldview. Everybody has a worldview. And it's just expressed in that conversation there. I mean, at this point in time, Fiona's worldview is, is not the end. Well it's different to what Jenny's worldview is, and Jenny's worldview comes out of the Bible. Um, we pray, we pray that God's Spirit will come and take them from darkness to light. That's that's what God's Spirit does. And also that the word is the truth, that, that yeah. Bible is true. Yep. Look look, many will say that. Um, th- there is some historical evidence uh, about the Bible. Um, the Bible has manuscripts. So manuscripts are the are the copies of the original parchments. So whatever Paul wrote on back in you know, thirty AD, forty five AD, sixty AD. So it's a long time ago. Within AD two hundred, so about one hundred and forty years later, we have we still have about I think it's about two thousand. I, I could be correct on that one. Two thousand manuscripts. So exact copies of the original parchments that Paul wrote on. Now, there's no other book in the world of all the historical books of philosophers of Plato and Pluto and all the other planets out there of Greek philosophers. uh, They they have copies as well, but their their nearest copy is like, I think it's six or seven hundred years later. And they have maybe three or four copies of of those manuscripts. The Bible has thousands of copies that are within about 150 years of when the Bible was originally written. Now, again, some of you would have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, discovered around the, um, in Israel around the Sea of Galilee back in the 1940s or 50s, I think, back then. They pulled out these Dead Sea Scrolls and they dated them to be about you know nearly 2,000 years old, thereabouts. So in that whole era of AD 200... And what they had there was the complete book of Isaiah and other parts of the New Testament. And when they got those Dead Sea Scrolls and then compared them with today's Bible that we have, basically they were about 100% accurate. No error. And that's amazing. Why is that? Because it's God's Word. He preserves it, He keeps it. It's the truth. It's the truth. Melissa? So so sort of that, we so that we have so many and believer, things and that kind of thing. What would you say that, that kind of? Sure. Um, different translations, there is. Some of them are in. Um, we have what we call literal translations, so it's word for word. So you might get a King James Bible from years ago and it'll have thee and thou written back from the 1500s, 1600s. So it's in that old English. It really is word for word translation. Uh, other translations are, are, are like thought for thought. So, what was the thought written back you know, 500 years ago when they wrote the English Bible? So what they'll do is they'll take that thought and translate it into modern day thought. So they'll use contemporary terms. So you might get other translations. New Living Translation is a bit like that. So that's the reason why there's different translations. If you, if you peel back all the layers of that and say, is the Bible communicating the same truth? It's communicating the same truth. Um, it's slightly different words, but it's communicating the same truth. Um, now you're saying only, only Christians believe? Is that one of the questions you said? Like the interpretation, yeah, yep. Again, what I would say there is, is we have we have um, two sets of beliefs, and I'll say that carefully. What we have uh, in one hand is closed-handed beliefs, okay? We have beliefs like the virgin birth of Christ. We have the belief in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. In other words, he took my place on the cross. He substituted himself. So we believe that Jesus Christ... Death for our sins is a closed that. That's not negotiable. We believe in the resurrection of Christ. That's not negotiable. So we call them closed-handed beliefs, there's, there's no room to move on those beliefs. We just don't change in those things. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, if you don't believe that Jesus died for your sins, if you don't believe the resurrection, then you're probably not saved. Actually, you aren't saved. Okay, we have open-handed beliefs in the other hand, and they can be modes of baptism. Some believe in infant baptism. That's fine. It's not critical to salvation. It doesn't really matter about salvation. When I say infant, that means sprinkling of an infant. That, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Others believe in full immersion baptism. That's fine. We're a church that believes in full immersion baptism here. But I've got no problems because I know there's some people in this church who um, believe in infant baptism. No dramas. I love them. And we can all get on really well with them. But it's an open-handed belief. It doesn't really matter about these closed handed ones. So these beliefs here, why, why don't Christians all agree? Because we tend to have more arguments probably around these open-handed beliefs. We'll argue over a, a baptism thing or something like that. And we shouldn't. We shouldn't. We should just say, ah, that's fine. You believe that. No problems. Just put our arms around each other and give each other a holy hug. No problems at all. <laughs> but if we go... If we go here and these ones that we don't believe in the cross, or we don't believe in the resurrection, or we don't believe in the virgin birth, and these other things, we're in serious trouble. So, and you know, for many bad reasons, the church has got a bad name for bad arguments in these open-handed beliefs here, where we shouldn't have those arguments. Let's just agree to disagree. So, it's hard for someone to grasp that, but that's really what the arguments are all in these sort of, you know, called a. Not the central core issues, but more the fringe fringe issues. Hayden. Sure. So Hayden's question there is, again, regarding um, cults like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons and, and some like that, which give a very, give a Christian appearance. They'll actually have sort of a Bible and they'll go to a church and they'll sort of give the appearance of being a Christian in many ways. Uh, the big separating thing when it comes to all those cults is their view on Christ. Who is Jesus? The Mormons? Uh, he's just an angel. He's just an angel, that's all he is as far as the Mormon cult's concerned. And he's not you know, not, the, um, not deity, not, not God in, in the flesh. And Jehovah's Witnesses, something similar. They, they'll have a false view about who Christ is. So if, if you're having a discussion with a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, um, try and open the Bible up. Sometimes they don't want to go there. And they've actually changed the Bible. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses have changed um, uh, a passage. I think at the end of Mark, where Jesus is talking to the thief on the cross and uh, he tells this thief, because the thief's asked for forgiveness, and he tells this thief, I, t- I tell you today you will be with me in paradise. Um, there's, a, there's a comma in there, which sort of gives a bit more sort of clarity to what Jesus was saying. In the Jehovah's Witness Bible, they've actually shifted the comma, which changes the whole meaning of this word, because their idea of a Jehovah's Witness, you do a lot of works before you get to heaven. You gotta do a lot of good things before you get to heaven. And Jesus has told this thief on the cross, hey, today, today, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jehovah's Witnesses, I'm telling you today that you will be with me in paradise. So not today, but I'm telling you today. There's a a change there when you read it. And it's it's the same thing. They have these little variations, but they make major, massive differences to the Bible. So it's 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 the person of Christ is what really separates these cults away from what the Bible would say about Jesus. Hard to get into a conversation with them because they don't really want to go there generally about that. Or they are totally blinded by what they've been indoctrinated with um, from their teachings. Nev? i just thinking what you're saying and We had a
1: young girl um, talking about Raja. this thing's good, that thing's good, and the illustration you touched from the treasure, the illustration of the soul the man seeking through there are lots of beautiful pearls out there. But when we find Christ, the pearl of all there, all those other pearls will find their proper place. Mm. And so the Word of God helps us in dealing with God. It helps us to deal with every error. If we just love the Word of God, it's the Spirit that will open it up to us to help us in all yep. of those circumstances to apply that word of truth to each situation. Yep. Um, it, is the, it is the pearl of all pearls. So yep. The Word became flesh. Jesus became flesh. Among us, the word is the true of a fact, everything else may be of value but not of supreme value. Yeah, let's
0: gives him supreme value. Yep, you're right. Then everything else finds its proper place after that. Excellent. <coughs> They yep. yeah, they Yeah, that's right, Helen, they did. Very much an appearance like a Christian organisation, but they're, they're a cult. Yeah. Dan? It's speaking about the Catholic faith, um, are they compatible with us and all those closed-handed beliefs? No. Um, those- they. they um, if you ask them what justification is, so what, what, is my, what is my foundation for why I'm saved or why I'm right, um, their justification isn't in Christ alone. It's, it's a longer detailed answer, but it's not totally and completely in Christ alone. There's, just, there, there's certainly minor variations, and that's why we had the Protestant Reformation nearly 500 years ago. Actually, it was, Protestant, it was Reformation Day on October the 31st, earlier this week. And that's the very reason, because uh, there was there was a protest against what the church of the day was proclaiming, and it wasn't Christ alone. Now, I'm not going to say that every Catholic is not a Christian. No way am I going to say that. I think there are some Catholics who are Christians. But if you, if you really took the... The detailed teaching of the of the Roman Catholic Church and put up alongside the Bible, you would find a lot of um, difficulty.
1: Nev, just at that point, we mentioned baptism before. But when the Roman Catholic Church believes you receive the Holy Spirit at baptism, that's changing the whole basis. The Scriptures teach we receive the Holy Spirit upon repentance and faith, not upon baptism. Hmm. Baptism reflects what's happened not is the cause of what happens. Yep. So that's where that to them and some doctrine mixes up as yep. well. So uh, that's one of the prime er- errors of Catholicism, yep. that um, you receive the birth by work, not by faith. Yep. When they uh, give an old community, that's the worst. That's like uh, cannibalism. You know, they that. believe that's just really bad news. Yep. Mandy?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also to be um, a good representation of what a Christian is and not bear the mindset that well, they don't know what they're talking about yep. but they have no idea totally. that that needs to be. Yeah, no, I totally agree. That's, yeah, I think if there's something that Christians have done badly, we've actually got camps. You know, call it a Baptist camp, a Presbyterian camp, a Pentecostal camp, a Reform camp, whatever, and we, we tend to, these ones here, we tend to fly this flag, and we we've got a fist in our other hand, ready to punch out people because they're not believing these ones. And we, can't, not at all. It shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't be like that. Respectfully love each other, respectfully disagree, and respectfully, let's open the Bible up and let's let God's Spirit work through that Word and maybe help us to see things differently. Go. Okay. Sorry. Gabs. Can you sort of talk a bit about um, all the information
1: you get and that I think the world, it can be sort of brainwashing? But I know a lot of non Christians think that Christians are brainwashed, <laughs> sort of like a cult as well. So, you know, how do you sort of deal with a person really brainwashed and how really it
0: sort of thing? <laughs> um, <laughs> look, you can't do much about their perceptions. Look, that may come a situation, particularly if you're the only believer in a family, they're all looking on and thinking, why are you living like that? We're all enjoying life out there and you're going to church every Sunday. Actually, you're taking money out of your wallet and you're putting in the plate. What do you live like that for? And and they can think that you're sort of brainwashed and you're not enjoying life, but they haven't got the same experience that you've got. Because when you read the Bible, you get joy out of it. You get truth out of it, you get hope out of it, you get contentment out of it, you get life out of it. So you can't really convince them other than showing them that my life is content. And sometimes the best way to show that contentment or that strength is through really hard times, is through really difficult times. Like if someone's been given a diagnosis of cancer or someone's lost their job or something extreme that sort of comes along, it's then when somebody can begin to see, whoa, whatever you've got, it's keeping you up. It's holding you on. You know, it's sometimes it's that that might maybe get the message home to them that I'm not brainwashed. It's, it's a reality. So you can't do much about their perceptions. Um, and it's, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if there were perceptions like that that people think, oh, you, you're brainwashed. What are you doing that for every week? I mean, you go out and enjoy your life. You know, that's what they're probably thinking, but you say, I'm actually enjoying my life. Really, really good, actually. Um, Karen. in the end And you're right um, with it. It's, it's doing it well, but it's opening the Bible up to say that's not the argument it's not between you and I. The argument's, you know, and there should be no argument. This is what the Bible says. Megan? I wanted to comment on what Gabby was saying about the thing about being brainwashed, just that I think that the Christian faith can stand up to being questioned and interrogated yeah. Good, Megan. Um, Christianity is not irrational, so that might be adding there as well. Yeah, you because know, people could look in and say, "You're brainwashed by some irrational thinking." So when I say it's not irrational, it, it it can be logically thought through. It's not it's not logically received. It's received because the Spirit gives us understanding. But you can rationally explain um, the Christian worldview. Barb's has got one of them over there, but I think there is one. I would recommend Barb's. has got some great stuff there on that. Or if you wanted to uh, talk about something else, we could, uh, we could help with some good information there as well. We might um, leave it there, guys. So uh, thank you for engaging with a bit of a questions here. And I pray that you've been inspired to um, not pick up that book. Well, you can still pick it up, but mainly pick this book up. <laughs> Enjoy some coffee and tea. Thanks.